Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, the writing on your tombstone, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes sinister nurses, blood-craving plants, and isolation madness. Now put on your masks as we watch this giveaway broadcast together. Number 1, Misery, 1990, directed by Rob Rayner. Right after finishing a new novel, author Paul Sheldon loses control of his car in the snow and crashes. He's found and saved by Annie Wilkes, his number one fan. Paul used to write books about a character named Misery Chastain, who Annie loves. Annie starts nursing Paul back to health. A sheriff starts looking for Paul. Annie's behavior at times reveals she's somewhat unhinged. Annie reads the newest Misery book and freaks out after learning Misery dies. Annie starts forcing Paul to write a new Misery book that reveals the character is actually alive. Paul tries to escape but is unable. Annie hobbles him so that he is unable to leave. The sheriff realizes that Paul is likely being kept at Annie's house. The sheriff investigates and finds Paul right before Annie shoots and kills the sheriff. Annie says it's time for her and Paul to die, but Paul buys some time by telling her the book needs to be finished first. Paul finishes the book and lights it on fire to distract Annie. They fight and Paul kills Annie. Months later, Paul has written a new non-misery book but still sees Annie everywhere. Annie Wilkes is the killer. That summary was wordy and still didn't hit on a bunch of things. Annie killed the sheriff but she didn't kill the deputy. The deputy was the sheriff's wife. Dang, that's sad. The sheriff in Misery is one of the best cops I've ever seen in a movie. He's crazy competent, which is the opposite of most movie cops. The new trailer for Castle Rock Season 2 came out recently, which revealed one of the main characters in the new season is Annie Wilkes, played by Lizzie Kaplan. I love me some Lizzie Kaplan. Mean Girls, Party Down, she's great. Since I hadn't seen Misery, I decided it would be best for me to see the movie before catching the new Castle Rock, even though it's a prequel so I would get at least some of the references that will definitely be peppered in. It'll be interesting to see if all the infanticide and other strange murder that appears to be caused by Annie is included in the season in some way. It's crazy to me that even if you haven't seen Misery, I'd say 99% of people who aren't young kids know about the hobbling scene. It's probably one of the most iconic horror scenes of all time. What's scarier than someone placing a board between your ankles, than taking a sledgehammer to them? Depending on your opinion of blunt versus edge weapon injuries, you might find someone chopping off one of your feet with an axe scarier. I could see both sides argued. The axe foot removal happens in the book. 
I'd actually love to watch a goofy debate about whether or not you'd rather have both ankles smashed with a sledgehammer or one foot chopped off with an axe. I put a poll up regarding this on Twitter. Search for the hashtag blank is the killer or my handle bonesawbaker if you'd like to participate. I don't think you'd ever be able to walk again after having your ankles sledgehammered in real life, even though movie Paul Sheldon is up and walking just 18 months after escaping the Wilkes residence. I should talk about the movie, yes? Let's start off with the acting. Kathy Bates is incredible as Annie Wilkes. That's no surprise to anyone. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her portrayal. She's a perfect balance of sweet and unhinged. She's terrifying. James Can is also solid. Sure, I could only understand every fourth word out of his mouth towards the beginning, right after he's saved from the crash, but I could see that being intentional since he was all banged up. It's weird to point out, but Can's pain reactions are perfect. Given all the things Annie does to Paul, there are quite a few pain reactions. This segues perfectly into the gore. Some of the gore is fantastic. The look of battered up Paul, especially his legs, after the crash is perfect. The hobbling scene shows the perfect amount of sledgehammer to ankle without being gratuitous. Most of the aftermath is left to the viewer's imagination, which instills a strong feeling of the heebie-jeebies. Yeesh. Still not as yeesh-inducing as that other King adaptation Gerald's game, but yeesh. Some other gore, like the wounds from when Annie's head makes contact with a typewriter multiple times, doesn't look as amazing. For the climactic fight, it appears as if someone smeared some fake blood on Kathy Bates' face and thought to themselves, eh, good enough. The bloody face does work, but I would have liked it to be a little more believable. Misery is a perfectly crafted movie, barring some of the climax gore decisions, and this one other weird nitpick from me. During the dinner between Paul and his agent at the end of the movie, both characters look a tad out of focus. They aren't overly blurry or anything, they just don't look nearly as crisp as everyone looks in all the other shots in the movie. It bothered me way more than it should have. I know that is the epitome of a nitpick. It's really nothing to get all worked up about. I'm just a weirdo. Did Paul deserve to be kidnapped by Annie? No. He did deserve to crash though. I've never driven in the snow. Paul zooms down a snowy mountain in his Mustang without a care in the world. Slow down, Paul. You don't have chains on your tires or anything. You do put chains on your tires in heavy snow, right? As a Texan, I've never encountered real snow. Where I'm from, a tiny bit of ice on the roads makes everyone panic. During the climax of the movie, Annie falls and her head becomes incredibly intimate with Paul's typewriter that is on the floor. She looks super dead after this, laying on the ground, lifeless with a huge pool of blood growing bigger and bigger from her head wound. I thought that was all she wrote for old Annie, but for some reason, Misery includes the slasher trope that the killer pops up for one last scare. That felt completely out of place given the tone of the rest of the movie. I would have been fine with Annie dying the first time. Still, Misery is a great movie that everyone should check out. I had no idea that the title, Misery, referred to Misery Chastain, the main character in Paul Sheldon's successful book series. I thought it was called Misery solely because of all the misery Paul goes through. Misery Chastain is one of the best names I've ever heard.
Number two, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, 1982, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. A man clutching a mask is being chased by men in suits. The man ends up in a hospital and is seen by a Dr. Tom Atkins. A man in a suit sneaks into the patient's room and murders him. Tom Atkins chases the man in the suit, who gets into a car and lights himself on fire. The murdered man's daughter, Ellie, shows up. Ellie and Tom Atkins join forces to figure out what happened to Ellie's father. Her father was selling Silver Shamrock Halloween masks and went missing after going to pick up more from the Silver Shamrock factory in a town called Santa Mira. Ellie and Tom Atkins head to Santa Mira to investigate. They become an unlikely couple. The duo finds out the whole town is run by Connell Cochran, the man behind Silver Shamrock. A woman mysteriously dies in the motel the duo is staying at. The duo heads to the factory and Ellie sees her father's car. Men in suits kidnap Ellie and take her to the factory. Tom Atkins attempts to rescue her but is captured after finding out the men in suits are robots. Cochran explains that he imbued the masks with power from Stonehenge in order to complete a mass sacrifice. He shows Tom Atkins that anyone wearing a mask will die after watching a special broadcast. Tom Atkins escapes, is attacked by robot Ellie, and is able to talk someone in charge of television to shut down two of the three Silver Shamrock broadcasts. The third continues as the credits roll. Connell Cochran and his robot servants are the killers. Hachi Machi, that summary kept going, and going, and going. Based on the summary, it seems like a lot of things happen in Season of the Witch, but once Ellie and Tom Atkins get to Santa Mira, the movie starts to drag on. I've disliked Tom Atkins in practically everything I've seen him in. Season of the Witch did not magically make me like him. I was hoping it would, since it seems like all other horror fans love the guy, but he doesn't do anything for me. I don't get the love. Do horror fans love him just because he's in a bunch of horror movies? Dee Wallace is too, and I dislike her even more than Tom Atkins. He never feels right for the role. It's not believable that Tom Atkins ends up with Ellie. Tom is much closer to her dead dad's age. They hook up before anything all that traumatic even happens, so I can't call the unlikely coupling a result of trauma bonding. Things I don't need to see in movies. Tom Atkins sex scenes. Yuck. I don't need to see Mr. Atkins flappy behind, thank you very much. Oh, after they've already done it once, Tom asks Ellie how old she is. A uh, little late for that, Tommy. I'm supposed to believe that all the ladies in this movie, barring Tom's real bee of an ex-wife, want to bang him? Speaking of his ex-wife, Season of the Witch leans heavily on the ex-wife might as well be a demon from hell trope. This only really works when there is animosity on both sides. See movies where Vincent Price and his wife hate each other. In Season of the Witch, the ex-wife is comically awful. It's partially Tom Atkins' fault. Right after he finds the murdered patient and watches the killer self-immolate, Tom calls his ex-wife to explain he can't pick up the kids, but leaves out everything about the murder-suicide. He just says there was an accident and two people died. He makes it sound like normal hospital deaths. It is kind of funny that whenever Tom is on the phone with the ex-wife, she is always yelling at him. I'm a fan of the idea of having the Halloween sequels be standalone movies. Unfortunately, Season of the Witch killed that idea. It's not even that bad of a movie. 
Sure, it lulls in places, but Season of the Witch is enjoyable and has some interesting concepts. You probably shouldn't give it your full attention. It could have been an amazing movie and general audiences probably would have hooted and hollered for more Mikey Myers anyway. All the acting in Season of the Witch is hamtastic. Well, Tom Atkins tries to be serious, which doesn't work. He's not a good actor. Fight me. He's bland. There's a point at the end where he's freaking out and yelling about the evil Silver Shamrock commercial to someone on the phone who is the king of television or something. It made me realize how much better the movie would be with someone like Nicolas Cage in the role instead. Any actor with an ounce of charisma would have been a better choice. If I'm missing some obvious reason why Tom Atkins is fantastic, please tell me. I want to be in the know. Season of the Witch shines when it comes to its few instances of gore. A robot pulls Ellie's dad's face up in a weird way to kill him, which looks neat. The town drunk tells Tom a little too much information, so robots pull off his head. That kill is hilarious. The sound that is added when the head is pulled off is cartoonish. The next stump then spurts one hilarious stream of blood. I wish the movie decided between this campy style and the more creepy gore, like when the woman in the motel takes a laser to the face from a silver shamrock device that's supposed to be on one of the masks. Her mouth ends up all kinds of screwed up after she accidentally gulps down the laser. Then a creepy, real bug crawls out of her pie hole and explores her gory face. That gore was legitimately disturbing. Hilarious head removal, disturbing lasered face, completely different tones. The only other interesting instance of gore is when we see a mask a boy is wearing activate. The mask begins to deteriorate as the lad's head is destroyed. Then a swarm of crickets pours out of the mask, followed by a bunch of snakes. The whole sequence is amazingly well done and squirm-inducing. I thought there would be at least a couple more mask activation scenes, and was sad when the movie ended with just the one. A big trope I have to hit on is the evil villain speech that reveals his heinous plan. For some reason, Cochrane turns Ellie into a robot right away, but doesn't dispatch Tom Atkins even after revealing the entire master plan. Speaking of robot Ellie, Robelly attacks Tom Atkins at the end of the movie. She starts losing body parts as they fight, and the body parts start attacking Tom Atkins by themselves. It's hilarious. I wish they went full in on the campy idea of Robelli continuously attacking Tom. At one point, she's torn in half at the waist. Her legs should have walked up to Tom and kicked him in the nuts. What a missed opportunity. I appreciate that Halloween 3 Season of the Witch tried to do something new when it comes to slasher sequels, but the movie isn't all that great. I still give it a soft recommendation since there are a few great entertaining nuggets. If you don't have an irrational disdain for Tom Atkins, you'll probably dig Season of the Witch. I actually don't think my disdain is all that irrational though. Someone explain the Tom Atkins love to me please. Email me about why you love Tom Atkins at blankisthekiller at gmail.com. I will read any justification next episode. I just don't get it. Number 3, Little Shop of Horrors, 1986, directed by Frank Oz. A poor schmuck named Seymour works in a flower shop that's about to run out of business. He recently came into possession of a strange and interesting plant, which when put in the window of the flower shop greatly helps business. 
The plant is named Audrey too, after Seymour's co-worker Audrey, who he has an eye for. Audrey has an abusive dentist boyfriend. Audrey too starts dying and Seymour figures out the plant eats human blood. Seymour starts off by feeding the plant his own blood, but Audrey too gets bigger and bigger and starts talking. Audrey too talks Seymour into killing the abusive dentist boyfriend. Seymour goes to kill the dentist who dies on his own after accidentally inhaling too much nitrous oxide. Seymour feeds the body to Audrey too. The shop owner saw Seymour chop up the body. Audrey too eats the shop owner. Seymour becomes more and more successful and starts seeing Audrey. Audrey too wants more food and attempts to eat Audrey. Seymour kills Audrey too with an electric current that makes the plant explode. Seymour and Audrey move to a nice house and a new Audrey too ends up in the garden. Seymour and Audrey too are the killers. Seymour was complacent in the dentist's death and could have saved him. Everyone has heard of Little Shop of Horrors. It's a musical based on a Broadway play that's based on a Roger Corman movie. Strangely enough, even though I've known about Little Shop of Horrors for years, I didn't really know any of the songs from it. The overall theme song seemed familiar, but I didn't recognize any of the other songs. There are a bunch of musicals that I haven't seen that I know some of the songs from. Little Shop of Horrors is filled with fun songs. One issue I had with the songs, though, is the fact that it is really hard to tell what some of the singers are saying, barring Rick Moranis and Steve Martin. Ellen Green, who plays Audrey, is especially hard to understand at times due to her high, unique voice. Don't get me wrong, I love her voice in the movie. It's just hard to understand a lot of the lyrics when she's singing. Since I've already named quite a few actors, everyone's great in this. Steve Martin is great as the abusive Dennis boyfriend. I found him talking about how he grew up a little psycho and found his calling when he became a dentist to be the funniest bit in the movie. I did not expect him to be a dentist. The dentist is a complete sadist and loves hurting his patients. Bill Murray shows up to his office. Murray's character is a masochist, so you can imagine how weird the interaction between the two characters is. Ellen Green does a great job as Audrey. Levi Stubbs' voice is spot on for Audrey too. Great performances all around, but the standout is definitely Rick Moranis as the low self-esteem Seymour. It's a shame he gave up acting because I can't think of any Rick Moranis performances I don't enjoy. There isn't really any gore in the movie. You see a little blood here and there from Seymour's pricked fingers and the dentist's dismembered body. But even though Seymour chops up the dentist and feeds Audrey two limbs, nothing present is all that gory. That's fine though. Little Shop of Horrors is a kooky comedic musical first and a horror movie second. Well, not even second, really. It's technically a horror movie since it includes a human-eating plant and has horrors in the title. Normally the best part of a musical is the music. I think all you listeners would agree that to be true. I could barely focus on the music or plot whenever Audrey 2 was on screen. Audrey 2 might be the most amazing puppetry work I have ever seen. I could not take my eyes off the godlike puppetry. There were parts in the movie where I started trying to convince myself that modern CGI was used to make the plant move because it looked way too real to solely be a puppet. There had to be some sort of visual effects trickery. All they did was shoot the puppet in a lower frame rate in slow motion and sped it up. That's all. 
no crazy blood magic ritual or anything. Audrey too has multiple forms throughout the movie as the plant grows, and they are all awe-inspiring. I recommend you watch Little Shop of Horrors for how absolutely incredible Audrey 2 looks alone. Even the puppet's lips move. There are so many moving parts, I can't even imagine how many puppeteers there were and how long they had to practice to bring the space plant to life. I definitely recommend checking out Little Shop of Horrors. Number 4, Haunters, The Art of the Scared, 2017, directed by John Schnitzer. This is a documentary where a bunch of people that love running and working in haunted house attractions talk about their passion and hardship. Three people have more screen time than everyone else. A haunt actor named Char, who's a nice lady that loves to be spooky. A man named Donald, who's trying to make the best classic style haunt. And a weird psychopath named Russ, who runs an extreme haunt called McCamey Manor. No one is the killer. That being said, I would not be the least bit surprised to find out Russ is a serial killer. A documentary? That's not a horror movie, Josh. It's a documentary about running a haunted house. This is also my podcast, so I decide what counts. Haunters, the art of the scare counts. Now this isn't going to be a normal review section because I don't normally cover documentaries. I believe the only other documentary covered on the podcast so far is Rankles the Clown. I mean... Wrinkles the Clown. I just love saying Wrinkles. That doc wasn't even on a normal episode. It's on the Fantastic Fest live stream app. Anyway, Haunters. What do I say about this documentary? It's interesting. It's cool to see different points of view when it comes to running haunted houses. I myself only did a haunted house type attraction one time at SeaWorld when I was a kid, and it wasn't really my thing. In Haunters, you basically have a good guy and a bad guy. Donald is the good guy. He looks like the lead singer of Smash Mouth. Donald always wears sunglasses because his eyes are constantly dilated. You find out that the permanent dilation might have been caused by head trauma he endured as a kid. What happened to his head, you might ask? His brothers used to beat the crap out of him. What? Yep. What did his parents do about that? Nothing. His mom even says she thought the beatings would make him tougher. Oh geez, poor Donald. Donald loves Halloween and looks forward to it every year. His wife hates Halloween and doesn't support his passion at all. Well, until the end of the documentary when they finally start working on it together. For most of the documentary, I was hoping he'd get a divorce. Beat as a child with a mom who was cool with it sounds like a serial killer upbringing, right? Strangely enough, the serial killer of the documentary, I mean alleged serial killer, I mean, guy who I wouldn't be surprised to learn is a serial killer, is Russ McCamey, the villain. Have y'all heard of McCamey Manor? I hadn't before just recently. Cat told me about this haunted house that was so extreme the creator would give $20,000 to anyone who completed the whole thing. Thing is, no one's ever completed it. That haunted house is McCamey Manor. It's less of a haunted house and more of a straight up torture dungeon. In the documentary, the $20,000 prize didn't exist yet. This haunt is run by Russ McCamey and his wife live-in girlfriend person. During the haunt, people are waterboarded, forced to eat things, physically assaulted, and emotionally tormented, among other things. There's a huge wait list of willing participants that want to go through the haunt. Now that you know the gist of this haunt, what kind of people do you think Russ employs? 
If you guessed creepy ex-military people, you won. Rust used to employ underage kids, but one of the older actors got too close to a young girl, so instead of firing the older guy and possibly getting the authorities involved, Russ got rid of all the underage actors. The whole thing is disturbing. Russ films everyone as they are tortured, and at the time the documentary was filmed, there were no safe words. So once you entered, Russ would torture you until he got bored, or you looked like you might actually be dying. Ugh. I felt gross just watching this dude run his haunt. Even though I find the whole McCamey Manor thing despicable, people are lining up to give it a shot, fully aware of exactly what happens in there. People are weird. During the McCamey Manor segments, a neighbor named Grace makes an appearance. Grace experienced McCamey Manor and hated it. She then talks about how she ended up going through the ordeal a total of three times. Russ says he tricked her into it, but come on, Grace. How are you going to accidentally end up in McCamey Manor multiple times after how traumatizing you said the first time was? McCamey Manor has taken over this section. Before I move on, I recommend checking out Haunters The Art of the Scare if you're interested in amateur haunted houses or probable serial killers. After watching the documentary, I also watched part of a show called Dark Taurus where a dude stopped by McCamey Manor a few years after the documentary. Russ was chased out of California and relocated to Tennessee. At the Tennessee location, he now allows a safe phrase. It appears that he treats people even worse and that he runs it mostly himself with the help of his new girlfriend who's not only way younger than Russ, but also more attractive. It's weird. Wait a minute. What happened to his wife, living girlfriend, his age person? Did Russ murder her? I seriously can't find any proof that the woman is still alive. Again, I'm not saying Russ murdered his old wife, girlfriend, partner lady. All I'm saying is I wouldn't be surprised to find out he did. My morbid curiosity for McCainney Manor is really getting the best of me. Russ doesn't even charge people anything but some dog food for the experience. Something nefarious has to be going on in that manner. I'll drop my investigation for now. Number 5, The Lighthouse 2019, directed by Robert Eggers. Tis a newer film, ye know the drill, spoilers ahead. Skip to 33 minutes 18 seconds, if ye don't want to be spoiled. You're a necessary blight on this podcast, spoiler beard. An old lighthouse keeper, Thomas Wake, and a new assistant, Ephraim Winslow, start a four-week stint at a lighthouse. Wake won't let Winslow into the lantern room. Winslow tries to be a perfect worker, but quickly begins to unravel after the boat that's supposed to pick him up after four weeks doesn't appear. Winslow reveals that he is actually Thomas Howard. He took the name Winslow from a man who died in an accident that he could have saved. Wake says Howard shouldn't have spilled his beans. Things get wild. Howard decides to bury Wake alive, takes his keys, looks into the lantern, and ends up naked on the rocks as seagulls pick him apart. Thomas Howard is the killer. The Lighthouse is Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Witch. I was a big fan of The Witch. My only issue with that movie is that Black Phillip took a human form at the end. I wanted him to stay a creepy goat, darn it. Being a fan of The Witch, I was excited for The Lighthouse. There's been some crazy positive buzz around this movie since before a trailer was even released. 
Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson stuck on an island together in a black and white 1.19-1 aspect ratio Robert Eggers movie. And if that doesn't make you start salivating, I don't know what will. Let's start this one off with my initial reaction when the credits rolled. What? What was this? I like this, but this confused me. What? I found The Lighthouse enthralling and confusing. It's a confusing film, not because it's badly written. It's only confusing because both of our characters are unreliable narrators. I'm assuming we are seeing everything from Winslow Howard's point of view, so it's possible that everything Wake says is true. We see Wake destroy a lifeboat and Howard be a hard worker, but Wake says Howard destroyed the lifeboat and wrote down in his logbook that Howard was a terrible worker who shouldn't even receive payment. Is Wake gaslighting Howard? Is Wake telling the truth? Some people think Wake is God and Howard is in purgatory. Howard pretends to be good for a bit until his true nature surfaces after his good deeds aren't instantly rewarded. I can see that. Heaven is the lighthouse lantern. Howard decides to go against God, Wake, and gain access to the lantern himself, which leads to his downfall. I can also see the lighthouse being an interpretation of Prometheus, with the lantern being fire. The movie does end with Howard having what appears to be his liver eaten by seagulls. The lighthouse is wide open for interpretation. It's intriguing and a great movie to discuss. Eggers himself said Howard and Wake lined up a bit with Prometheus and Proteus, the old man of the sea. I originally thought some type of loop was going on. Wake says his last assistant died after becoming obsessed with the lantern and sirens. Howard dies after becoming obsessed with the lantern and sirens. There are sirens in the movie. They are unsettling and prone to screeching. Howard even has intercourse with one. This is the second horror movie I've seen within a year that has human-siren intercourse and explicitly shown siren genitalia. The other movie being The Lure, the best movie I watched for the podcast last year. The siren vagina in The Lighthouse is very interesting, to say the least. Eggers said it's based on a shark's. That's TMI, isn't it? Anywho... Wake tells Howard that killing a seabird is bad luck because they are inhabited by the souls of dead sailors. One particular seagull with a missing eye keeps messing with Howard. Quick side note, that seagull was played by three actual seagulls and they did a phenomenal job. Howard finds a head in the ocean that's missing an eye, and when Howard ends up naked on the rocks being munched on by gulls, he's also missing an eye. Was the head another version of Howard? Was the seagull another version of Howard that was trying to warn him? Howard viciously slams the seagull against a metal container until well after it's dead in a very disturbing scene. The dookie hits the fan after Howard lets out all his frustration on the gull. I think my loop interpretation and the Prometheus one can live in harmony. Prometheus's punishment is basically loop-based. Both Wake and Howard share the same name, Thomas. Some people think they are the same person at different points. The subtitles refer to them as old and young. I don't think that's the case myself. The Lighthouse is an expertly crafted film. The shot composition, lighting, sound design, score, 
production design, and acting are all astounding. The only slight issue I had with the film was Robert Pattinson's accent. It takes him a while to stick to one. I saw a theory that his character was adopting the accent of Winslow and let Howard's real voice slip out when he was frustrated or drunk, which is an interesting take. I read that Eggers wanted him to do a very specific accent though, which seems to discredit that theory. Besides the accent being a little rocky in the beginning, Robert Pattinson's performance is incredible, Willem Dafoe's is even better, Willem Dafoe's old grouchy seaman is perfect, his delivery is amazing and captivating, I could watch his wake spout off random sea curses and his old-timey accent for hours. After finding out Howard doesn't actually like his cooking, Wake goes on a full two-minute tirade and curses the lad. At one point in the lighthouse, Wake even turns into a version of Neptune that has a bunch of tentacles. I have barely touched on all the things that happen. The Lighthouse is an enthralling movie that you should definitely check out if you are into weird, nonsensical at times cinema that's very open to interpretation. If you are looking for a straightforward narrative, you might not like this one. I'll be watching anything Robert Eggers releases. Number 6, Pilgrim, 2019, directed by Marcus Dunstan. A girl named Cody has a new stepmom that decides to invite hardcore pilgrim actors into their home to reenact a traditional Thanksgiving dinner. One pilgrim named Ethan stays with Cody's family, and another named Patience stays with Cody's boyfriend and his mom. Ethan acts weird and never breaks character. Patience kills Cody's boyfriend and his mom. Way more pilgrims show up at Cody's house. Cody discovers the dead bodies of her boyfriend and his mom. The pilgrims start torturing Cody and her family. Cody and her family are able to take out one of the pilgrims before they are captured. Cody's dad is murdered. Cody is told to mash up berries for dinner. Cody mashes up poison berries with the regular ones. The pilgrims start dying. Ethan and Patience force themselves to throw up. The family kills Ethan and Patience. The Pilgrims are the killers. Pilgrim is the second Hulu Into the Dark, shortened from now on to Hulark movie of year two. The director Marcus Dunstan has directed some decent horror movies, including The Collector and The Collection. He also had a part in writing the Feast movies and some of the Saw sequels. I think The Collection is a really fun horror movie, so seeing him listed as the director of Pilgrim made me cautiously optimistic. Pilgrim is bad. That shouldn't be any surprise seeing as Hulark movies have a terrible batting average. I almost turned off Pilgrim after the first five minutes because for some reason the entire movie is filled with visual lag. It's hard to explain since I'm not sure what the correct term for it is. It's like the frame rate would randomly drop during shots. I have not had any weird frame rate issues with any other Hulark movie. Prior to watching Pilgrim, I was seamlessly watching other shows in high definition, so I'm pretty sure the issue was not on my end. I also watched the new Castle Rock episode that's also on Hulu right after and had no issues. So, yeah, Pilgrim had jank frame rate issues the whole time I was watching the movie. 
I gave up on another movie called Girls With Balls that looked like a fun slasher for the same issue. For that movie, I tried to stream it on Netflix and attempted to watch it on different days to see if it was an issue on my end. The weirdness persisted. So I gave up on Girls With Balls. The only reason I forced myself to sit through the frame rate issues with Pilgrim is due to it being a Hulark movie. I have dedicated myself to watch all the Hulark movies, no matter how bad they are. After about 40 minutes, I was finally able to ignore the terrible frame rate issues, but I was never able to ignore the obnoxious lens flares that are in almost every shot for absolutely no reason. The camera work in Pilgrim is atrocious overall. There are constant, unnecessary zooms and awkward pans. The only thing worse than the camera work is the editing, which is choppy and all over the place. Speaking of all over the place, Pilgrim could not decide on a tone for the movie. The first four-fifths of the movie is your average creepy person we for some reason allowed into our house has something truly off about them, horror thriller. The last fifth of the movie is goofy murderous Pilgrim weirdness that borders on splatstick. During the overly comedic last fifth, the score changes from uninspired spooky music to silly out-of-place songs. Pilgrim as a whole belongs at the bottom of a dumpster. That being said, the last 15 minutes are entertaining. Damn my penchant for splatstick even when it isn't executed all that well. The family beating one of the pilgrims to death heavily reminded me of the scene in Shaun of the Dead where the zombie is wailed on with pool sticks while Queen plays. The dad in Pilgrim seems to be the only person that was told to act as if the entire movie was a comedy. Everyone else acts like they are in a more serious horror film. I didn't really have any problems with the acting besides the overly goofy performance from the dad. Throughout the entire movie, he is watching the stock market. Someone would come up to him and he'd be like, I'm busy. Stock market. Can't take my eyes off them stocks for a second. He's making money. Funnily enough, at one point in the movie, he ends up locked in old-timey stocks. Stock man locked in stocks. I guess it's more amusing than funny. I doubt it was even done on purpose. Back to the last zany fifth of the movie. Cody has access to highly poisonous berries, which she adds to the normal berries she's told to mash up. Okay, why does Cody have these highly poisonous berries? Well, you see, earlier in the movie, Ethan took Cody's younger brother foraging. They found a bunch of berries and put them in a basket. In their berry basket are some Jerusalem berries that are extremely poisonous. Ethan knows this and points out the deadly berries to everyone. Ethan, if those berries are so extremely poisonous that consuming even the smallest amount leads to death in minutes, why would you leave them in the basket with the edible berries? I know the answer is so Cody can get the upper hand, but still. The whole let's hang on to these incredibly dangerous berries and keep them in the basket with the ones we're going to eat later is asinine. Even though the whole poisonous berry thing is terribly written into the plot, watching the pilgrims vomit a bunch of blood was a lot of fun. The bloody throw up is all practical and the highlight of the movie. Speaking of throw up, Cody's dad's head ends up on a platter on the dinner table. Did I forget to mention that the pilgrims were also cannibals? Yeah, they even make Cody and her stepmom eat some of the dad husband. Shocking. 
Anyway, Cody's younger brother comes into the dining room, sees Dad's head on the table, and throws up on the floor. It's amazing. Is this the last comedic moment with Dad's severed head? Nope. Stepmom picks up the head and smacks Patience in the dome with the dome a few times. I want to say this is the first time I have seen someone use a decapitated head as a weapon. Kudos there, Pilgrim. All the gore and blood barf is solid. Josh, you just said that a woman uses a head as a weapon and there's a bunch of cannibal pilgrims throwing up blood. Why is this movie bad again? Besides when Pilgrim turns into a full-on horror comedy for the last 15 minutes, it's an awfully shot and edited slog. Pilgrim is just another Hulark installment that should have been a short about cannibal pilgrims popping up to ruin a family's Thanksgiving dinner. Skip the whole movie and consider watching the last 20 minutes if you're looking for some random, stupid horror action. You'll want to start at the part where the family beats a pilgrim to death in the backyard. Number 7, Marion. 2019, directed and created by Samuel Bowden. This section will not have any big spoilers. Marion is a show on Netflix about a writer that writes about a witch named Marianne, who may or may not be real. The first episode of Marianne is hella spooky. After watching it, I was hyped up for a long, scary show, but things started to get goofy in the next episode, like slapstick goofy. The main character and writer of the Marianne books is named Emma. In the second episode, she tries to jump a fence, and instead of clearing it, ends up jumping directly into the fence with a comical splat. Um, what? Marianne, I... I thought we were going to be a spooky show. You built such a tense and unnerving atmosphere in the first episode. What's up with this goofy whiplash? Before I proceed, I recommend Marianne. It's a fun show. Is it as spooky as everyone's been blabbing it is? For the first episode, yes, but then the whole tone of the show changes. Light, light, light spoilers. Marianne has a bunch of different designs in the show. Some are creepy and amazing, and some are bug-eyed and only remind you about those people from Ripley's Believe It or Not that could make their eyes bulge out of their heads. Silly, bug-eyes Marianne did nothing for me. Marianne has one look that's used for the cover of the show where she has a bag on her head, which I really like. Baghead Marianne is such a creepy and intimidating design. At times, Marianne takes over characters in Emma's nightmares and what have you, and the design for the possessed characters is great. When Marianne is talking through someone, they have beady, white, glowing eyes and a wicked smile. I thought that was an amazing way to portray the, for lack of a better word, possessed characters. A lot of the production and character design is amazing, barring the already complained about bug eyes. Again, very light spoilers. Marianne leaves gross flesh bags that are filled with hair and teeth all over the place that are inherently creepy and disgusting. I'm a big fan of the flesh bags. They must have been done before, but even if they aren't an original idea, they look fantastic in Marianne. The acting for the most part is good enough for me. I don't remember having any issues with anyone's acting, but the show is in French. It's possible that if I was a native speaker, I'd have a completely different opinion of the acting. At one point in the season, the kid versions of Emma and her friends pop up, and kid Emma looks nothing like grown-up Emma. That's not that big of a gripe, but they do look completely different. 
Without spoiling anything else, there isn't a ton of gore in the show, but when blood is shown, it looks solid. I don't recall a lot of CGI. Welp, since I'm not going to ruin any other specifics, that'll be it for this Marianne section. Check it out if you have Netflix. Just don't expect it to maintain the eerie, spooky tone of the first episode throughout the whole season. Blank is the killer, 57, sinister nurses, blood-craving plants, and isolation madness has reached its conclusion. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating on iTunes or emailing me about anything at blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Shoutouts to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. I recently gained access to the Alamo Drafthouse Season Pass and have been trying to consume a bunch of movies to make it worthwhile. I saw Parasite and Jojo Rabbit and highly recommend both. They aren't horror, so they didn't get full sections. Next episode I'll be covering The Shining and Doctor Sleep. Yeah, I've never seen The Shining in full in one sitting. I'm a fraud. I meant to check it out a while ago, but thought it would be cool to watch it right before seeing the sequel. That episode will be out on November 17th. Till then, don't spill your beans.